welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. Hey, really, my guest today is Mark Watson, and he is a serial entrepreneur based out of Austin in Texas in the US. Um, Mark is, well, he's built many, many, many businesses before. Um, he has, well, we talked about the dot-com boom and bust when Mark was building businesses and actually some of the comparisons that that period has to this time period, particularly in healthcare, where we saw COVID happen, we saw investment dollars flood in um, from many sort of cross-sector investors and created a bit of a boom arguably creating a bit of a bust now too. So we talked about those parallels between that time and this. Um, talk about Mark's entry into healthcare after some of the original businesses that he had built. Um, some of the challenges of investing in healthcare startups from a kind of angel perspective. He's also got a fund as well and how he looks at different investments from that perspective. We talk about in healthcare the value of customer satisfaction, particularly in that kind of beta C space um, and some of the wellness businesses that are being built built currently, um, and uh, the new school uh, profitability um, mindset over the kind of revenue on. So we talk about lots of different things. Mark's got a hell of a lot of experience in this world. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. Mark, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, James. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Delighted to have you on. There's loads we can get in and talk about. You've got a heck of a background, which I've probably just talked about in your introduction. And yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to get into. Let's just let's just say that. And uh, yeah, a heck of a background to go through before we uh, before we talk about even what you're up to now in health tech. So, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Mark? Where are you based? I'm in Austin, Texas. You 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 can't see out the window, but I'm I'm in Austin, Texas. Excellent. And it's still so, uh, very hot here in September. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And plenty of people moving there from uh, from California, so I gather, uh, on the grapevine. This big tech exodus. Yeah, this is tech exodus number two. The first one happened during the dot-com bubble. And you're much better off on a bicycle than on an automobile. <laughs> Excellent. Um so Mark, listen, I know you've got a really interesting story and background, which starts at a very young age. So for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story um, all the way up to getting into health tech? Well, I, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur at heart my whole life. And <laughs> I think the first entrepreneurial business I ever had, maybe it's a little too much to call it a business, but I was a Boy Scout and we used to go on campouts once a month. And I'd get my mother to take me to the drugstore and I'd go in and I'd buy 20 bucks worth of candy and I would come back with 50 bucks in my pocket. <laughs> and my friend's parents were so upset. <laughs> and and then, um, they're like, why are you doing that to my son? And I'm like, I'm just providing a scarce value. And, exactly. and uh, anyway, it's, I had another friend that I'd get, he'd write up magazines and like little comic books and I'd go resell them and, I had a paper route and and I worked at a scuba shop when I was in high school. I became a dive master at 18 and and dove in the Houston Ship Channel off of tankers and I was always trying to how to turn something into a business. And and I took an entrepreneurship class when I was in business school at SMU and and uh my professors like I don't know what you're going to do but it'll probably work out okay. It's like thanks. <laughs> 
nice. Um, so that's where it all begins. But obviously you got up to the age of 18 there. Um, what happens next? How do you learn business? How do you actually end up yeah, with the skills to be an entrepreneur? You know, there's always this debate of what do you go to school to learn? What mm-hmm. do you learn through trial and error? That's also called innovation. And what do you learn from from observing from observing others? And at the time, I remember people saying to me, man, you're a natural born leader. And I'm like, okay, well, I haven't led anything yet, but let's see how this goes. And and what I learned way after the becoming successful was I had a father who was an entrepreneur. Both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs. So I, I grew up learning about entrepreneurship at the at the dinner table. And but I didn't realize it at the time, right? I thought that's just how everybody acted. You know, everybody went and started a business and did this and that. And and I remember my my senior year at, at SMU, I was in an in an honors class that the chair of the finance department was teaching and the class was called small business finance. And this is back in the eighties, right? But everything, you know, we, we, we built the proverbial widget in every company we studied and we always measured revenue in tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. And I said, if this is a small business, you know, shouldn't it be like, like millions of dollars? They're like, Mark, Y'all are going to be successful. You need to think bigger than that. And and turns out that it's just as easy to build a business with more zeros than less zeros in, in, in hindsight. But I, I took a detour after college and I went to law school because I thought that would help me uh, in business. The truth is I had a job offer to go to an investment bank uh, called First Boston Company, which was since acquired by Credit Suisse, which has since been acquired by UBS. And and then the crash of 87 happened and there weren't any jobs on the street. So I had to put my law degree to use up in New York. That was exciting, but it gave me enough experience uh, to then come back and and uh, and and help my father take his company public back in in the early 90s. And man, that thing was all entrepreneurship. and the worst thing you could do was go and present a problem because the next thing you knew you were in charge of that part of the company. And, <laughs> and I, I remember one, one, one time we were working, there was one business unit and I knew this wasn't going well because I was, I was practicing law in New York and, you know, he and I would, I'd check in with this CFO a lot and it's like, yeah, you know, we kind of got this thing figured out. I'm like, yeah, sure you do. So I show up in their office a year and a half later as their general counsel, and I'm like, okay, so uh, how's that going? They're like, uh, oh, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, let's dig into that. So I went and talked to all the people in charge, and I came back, and I'm like, they have no idea what they're doing. He's like, <laughs> okay, you're now in charge. And I'm like, thanks a lot. So you know, I, I tell the story to say so much, so much, of, so much of entrepreneurship is it's figuring stuff out and figuring how to make a business work. And I think that I think so many people think that that being an entrepreneur means that you have to start a business from scratch and then get this big exit five, 10, 20 years later. And when I think about most entrepreneurial people I know, it's how they approach business that I would say 
makes them an entrepreneur. I mean, it's too it's too cute to say entrepreneurship is a state of mind, but it's not like you wake up and say, I'm going to learn how to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to go start this business. It's uh, it's just as important to know how to, to keep building businesses and scaling them as an entrepreneur than starting something from scratch with the PowerPoint presentation. It's a really interesting point, actually. And you, you talked about your father and your grandfather being entrepreneurs. I thought what you were going to say there was that it's therefore in my genes, it's therefore in my blood. It, I was I was a born entrepreneur, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a conversation we have quite a lot on this on this podcast, you know, do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? But it's interesting to me that when you when you talked about your lineage there, you then you then actually attributed the fact that you're an entrepreneur to the fact it was talked about round the dinner table, which actually links quite nicely with the fact that you're saying it's more your approach and how you deal with problems and how you, you know, how you approach those problems and all that kind of thing. So it's actually more of a kind of, as you say, state of mind or up, you know, you were more taught those things around the dinner table than perhaps being bought, being born with them. But correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think that's right. But let me, let me, let me just flesh that out a little bit. One of the things that I was also saying is that I observe their behavior. Hmm. The point I would make is to say that sure, you have to have the right aptitude, you have to have the right amount of intellectual curiosity, the right amount of both EQ and IQ. And I think what I've learned over time is that you can learn how to be a leader if you have those elements that I just described. And by the way, just because you have those elements doesn't mean you're going to become an entrepreneur or a leader. I, I think, and and I'm I'm not the doctor, so I'll let I'll let you jump in. But I I think for most of us, right, the way we are today as adults is more learned behavior than than our DNA, and yeah, than our DNA. I think it's you mm-hmm. have to have you have to have a certain DNA, mm-hmm. but then you've got to really refine it, and it it's um you've got to put your ten thousand hours in, so to speak. Mm. I saw or I read actually an interview answer that you gave a little while ago when you were asked about the qualities that are required for entrepreneurship and you said or or, or that actually it might have been that to led to you, that led to your success and your answer was curiosity tenacity and resilience can you talk to me about those three things and the balance of them are any more important than another do you think no, I think you, I don't think any one of them is more important. I think they're all important. You know, we're at such a cool place in time right now where technology is turning everything upside down in business in general and in, in life science in particular, which we can talk about, about later. But it, if you're not always trying to figure out, you know, something new and different and or how to just do something better, it's it it's just if you don't have intellectual curiosity it, it's hard to imagine building building a business or making the world a better place because you just kind of are happy with the status quo um uh, and and by the way i'm a taurus so i'm supposed to be happy with the with the status quo so there's this tension in my mind every day between yeah everything's just fine and oh well let's go look at that thing over there you have to have a lot of tenacity 
because more people are going to tell you no than they are going to agree with you. And you can have the best idea, but that doesn't mean everyone else thinks you have the best idea. You can build the most amazing product, but if only three customers like your product, then you know you just got to put your head down and grind it out until you find the next three or or pivot your business and then go find another three. Uh, but it it you know that that list of things is 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 perhaps even even longer than that. But but you know those two those two I think matter the most to me. I think the curiosity one's really interesting because for people like yourself, you know, who have had an exit in their early thirties that are now sort of thrust into a very different place in life financially. And I I think one thing that crops up for me is sort of, you could call it purpose. You could call it drive. You could call it lots of different things, but I do find like second and third time and fourth and fifth and sixth time entrepreneurs fascinating because I do wonder what is driving them. And so you've IPO'd a couple of companies. You've had a fund for a long time now, successfully so. Can you talk to me about what drives you and particularly what drove you into healthcare and health technology? Yeah, there was one very specific thing that drove me into to healthcare. The, the, the tech has always been a part of me. So I was looking for technology solutions to healthcare. Uh, after, you know, after, so after, after we, we sold and had exit number one, I wanted to go start a venture firm to help other young entrepreneurs get their business going and coincidental with that uh sadly my late stepmother was diagnosed with lung cancer that metastasized to her brain and i wanted to go save the world and i wanted to do it as an investor i spent a lot of that first year looking at different companies uh, to invest in. And this is right at the beginning of the dot-com bubble. So money was going everywhere, kind of like it, mm. like it was a couple of years ago. Very similar. And what I realized is that investing in a lot of these companies wasn't a very good match because of the time it takes to get approvals from the FDA and all the clinical trials that you have to do for for most businesses. And as a first-time entrepreneur in an institutional way, my time horizon, because my investor's time horizon or co-investor's time horizon was a lot shorter. And after a year, I actually found this company. So that humbled me a little bit, by the way. But again, you know, I kept my head down and kept grinding ahead. And, and, and ironically, one of the first companies that the first company that we invested in was based here in Austin. It was called Vitimedics. Sadly, you won't be able to find it anywhere on the internet, but it was it was the first telemedicine company of its kind. And again, this is back in the late 90s. It was exactly then what you see today in telemedicine platforms. 
except that back then people thought that that telemedicine was a bad thing. It was taboo or it just wasn't accepted in our culture. COVID really helped accelerate that. Uh, second, depending on the state you're in, uh, you, the medical boards didn't necessarily allow you to practice tele- telemedicine if you were a doctor. And third, and, and, and most important, which dwarfs the other two, uh, the bandwidth that we're using today to talk to each other didn't exist back then. And keeping up a video connection was just, it was a disaster. So great idea, just way too far ahead of its time. Mm. Before I delve deeper into health tech, I actually want to ask you about something you mentioned at the start there, which was the dot-com boom or bubble, depending on how you want to describe it. You said that money was everywhere. We've experienced something similar, I would say, in perhaps the last few years. Perhaps You might argue differently. But I actually don't know much about the dot-com boom itself. My only question here is, what was that actually like? And you were starting a, you decided to start a fund. You wanted to go down that route. You obviously, to raise a fund, you need to go around LPs. You need to collect lots of money from quite wealthy people or institutions and that kind of thing to put this together. I'm asking because we're in a world now where, especially with what's happened very recently, it's actually very difficult to raise money. It's, it's known as a difficult time, particularly if you're a first-time fund manager and want to put a fund together. I mean, good luck doing it in this environment. Um, but the dot-com boom, it's really interesting to me because I actually, I actually saw, I read a little bit about it last week um, in terms of what was actually going on and, and you know, if you had money in the S&P 500 at the time, what would it would have gone to and that kind of thing. So, Obviously, it was a lucrative time for lots of people, and there's a lot of kind of excess, perhaps. But being in tech, and perhaps not being in healthcare at the time, but just being in tech, what was that actually like? Well, <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of different answers. Uh, first, let me say that i i took I took a different approach with how I set up Aquila Capital Partners back then, and it's the same approach that I have today. Uh, one, I, I didn't raise a dedicated fund and I didn't do that in, in part because of what you just described, right? It, it was, it was hard to raise money at that time. Uh, but I, but I mainly did it then. And the reason that I haven't raised a fund since is I wanted the flexibility of being able to invest in early stage and or later stage deals. Yeah. Okay. I didn't want to have, I didn't, but here, but, but more importantly, I didn't want to have money burning a hole in my pocket. Mm. And if you go back and you look at all the, I might've said dot-com boom earlier, but that also turned into the dot-com bust. And, and I saw it, I saw it both as investor and, and as, as operator. And which gets me to my last point, which is I wanted to have the flexibility of being able to dive in deep to some of my portfolio companies, which I couldn't have done uh, if I had a if I had a dedicated fund. So now let's talk about let's talk about diving diving in deep a little bit. And and the comments I'm going to give you they're they're kind of they're true of every industry. So I'm just going to give kind of a a broad answer, not not industry specific. In the late 90s, like we saw 
until a year ago, uh, over the last five years now. And then you saw all these strategic invest, you saw all these industry participants create these strategic investment vehicles called, you know, their venture arm. Mm. And their venture arm was ostensibly to go and find the next new thing for the company. And so that all of a sudden brought all this new capital in. You had venture firms finally starting to make some money. And so people were throwing money at, at venture firms. And the big firms, they've done just fine because they have the benefit of time and patience. But these new funds, man, they got to, they got to, you know, the way that the way this works is you've got to deploy your capital mm. so that you can get your, I'm being a little cynical here, right? But you got to, you got to deploy your capital so you can get your 2% management fee uh-huh. and, and get the clock going. Because as soon as you use up your capital, you can then go invest fund number two. Mm-hmm. And you don't have any exits in fund number two when you're raising money for fund number two. So it's not that hard to go raise fund number two is based yeah. upon, hey, I deployed fund number one. And it's only until yeah. you get to fund number three that you're that you're that you're they, that that your track record gets looked at or your <laughs> homework is marked. And and so again, I'm being a bit cheeky, but if you go look at all those new funds back then. And all the strategic VCs that that had much looser uh, investment standards, businesses were just getting flooded with capital. I mean, it's kind of the same thing now as it was then. I think there were I don't know five pet stores that went public. You know, at at huge valuations that all went to zero. I mean, uh, mm. in in almost every industry, most companies ended up going to zero because here's what happened was in the beginning, you got you got all this money and it was grow at all costs. This is, you know, James, this is a land grab. We've yeah. got to go. Give us another 50 million bucks and we've got first mover advantage and we're going to do the land grab. And and for a couple of companies that worked and for others, well, it turns out that they didn't have as many clients for their product as they thought. Because they were too focused on having an amazing product, not delighting their their customer, and and then all of a sudden, you know, investors started going, "Hey, can you just tell us if the lifetime value of your customer LTV is actually more than what <laughs> it's costing you to acquire your so customer?" Them, yeah. <laughs> well, well, James, a lot of them couldn't figure the math out, mm-hmm. so that's a problem because. They were really good at PowerPoint and telling their story. I mean, how many websites do you go on now? And it starts with our story, you know, and, and it, you know, I saw this tree get struck by lightning and it inspired me to go open a new restaurant. I mean, so (laughs) I'm digressing, but, but so, so then that became a challenge and then investors quite correctly came back and said, okay, that's great. But, you know, don't you really think you need to do that in like three years, not 30? And and so so the bar kept going up. And then it was, mm-hmm. okay, well, tell us when you're going to get to cash flow positive. And by the way, like that needs to be in the next two years. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the bar went up a little higher. And then it was, well, tell us when you're actually going to make money. Like 
like gap net income, not pro forma pre-tax income. And it became quite evident that most of these businesses were structurally flawed because if you if you really looked at how much it, it, it costs to bring in customers, they, they couldn't do it. One of the other industries that, that I've been focused on is fintech. And I was involved in a number of fintech startups back then. And, and in one particular space, only one company survived and they spent a half a billion dollars building their brand over a 10-year period before they actually were a true market participant. Well, most investors don't they don't they don't have that kind of time, distance and money. So that's what happened then. And by the way, I, the reason I kind of gave you the long version of that answer is you're seeing the same thing play out right now. That's literally why I asked the question, yeah. The same thing's playing out today. You know, investors have said, "Hey, we'll give you some more money if you can show that that the money you're spending really is going to bring in customers over the life of the customer." And and by the way, you really can't spend money forever. So tell us how you're going to get the cash flow positive. That's where we are right now uh, in this cycle. And I, I had suggested to my co-investors a couple of years ago, I didn't think it would end any differently this time with two exceptions. Uh, one, because there's so much more tech available at a lower price it allows more entrepreneurs to jump in without needing the same capex to get going. Um, and second, it doesn't cost as much. Well, that's not true today. At the time, it didn't cost as much to acquire customers as it did before. But but if Google and Meta keep keep upping their prices, then that's not really a true statement anymore. So we'll see we'll see how things go. It's a different toolbox today. And and it's a toolbox that allows really, really bright, ambidextrous people to do more with less. But it's still a very competitive marketplace. Really interesting answer that. And that's why I started reading about it, because we've had the... Co- in, I'm going to go healthcare specific now and health tech specific, but we've had COVID. We've had attention because of COVID. We've had so much more money flow in from investors because of covid we've seen it in the numbers we've seen the bump of all of that extra money what that did to valuations everything and we're now in this sort of post covid bust facilitated by the rest of the tech industry as well and so in healthcare where yeah the co- you know acquisition cost of customers in healthcare is high they're difficult to obtain if you're b2b and all that sort of stuff so we're seeing this bust now, and that's why I started reading about it. And actually, you know, there's there are just seemingly so many parallels. And so I guess my question at this point is that it's interesting again, you, you know, you, you mentioned this cycle. You've clearly seen a few cycles. You've clearly understood that this is just another cycle. But with that knowledge is also the experience through them and so my question i guess is moving on to your kind of now you're a health tech investor at least in part and it forms a significant part of your portfolio and knowing where we are in the cycle how do you think about investing now and making this quite practical for people listening i guess but given where we as i say given where we are in the cycle given 
your knowledge of the industry and investment with Aquila for a long time. How are you looking at healthcare investments right now? Well, I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at all investments the same way, which is there were all these new, new startups in the last few years. And I'm, I'm letting the field kind of clear a little bit on the one hand. But what's different this time that's got my attention, got me back in, is you talked about COVID brought in a lot of, a lot of what I'll call hot money. Mm. Uh, but COVID also, COVID also allowed a lot of tech-based businesses or new business models in general to really fast forward in in nine months, maybe mm. eighteen months. Uh, what might have taken another decade? So telemedicine is is a great example. You know, if you and I were doing this interview five years ago. My guess is that that if I happen to have been in the same city as you, we'd be in a we would be you know in a in a room in a sound booth, and we'd be doing this together in person. It's really interesting you mentioned that um, actually, just to jump in because but, I I started this podcast about five years ago, and you're right, it was it it was a bit weird to do video calls on the podcast. I actually started doing this podcast with no video turned on. We were on Zoom, but the video wasn't turned on. And that's how I yeah. did them because that that was more normal than conducting a video call, even though I was only just using the sound. So it was it was it was actually like an intrusive step to be like, can I turn the video on to look at you? Because that makes me feel a bit more comfortable when I interview you. That was a definitive step that I took a bit later, yeah. which is as you say, very bizarre to actually think think back to that because I hadn't really even thought about that until just now. But yeah, that's you're absolutely right. The, the world has changed significantly in telemedicine since then. Well, yeah, and also you had to turn the, the camera off, I bet, because there wasn't always enough bandwidth to keep the camera on. Now, you know, how how the video equipment uh, or how the software gets used has has improved significantly. And just to digress for a minute, I can't tell you how many times I'd try and meet with, you know, when I was actively involved in one of my portfolio companies, I, I, I can't tell you how many times we'd have a video conference among several offices in the company and we'd all be bolted onto the same video system, right? And I mean, I mean, this was like really expensive, high-end stuff <laughs> yeah. um, that Cisco Cisco eventually bought. But, but that, I mean, so it was more high-end than Cisco. And I can't tell you how many times I'd walk into the conference room and sit down to start the meeting, and the IT person would be leaning over the desk, I mean, <laughs> the, the table, trying to you know, wiggle a wire to see if that might change something. And, and so it's just, it, it's really changed a lot. And so, so COVID forced us to think about how to do things differently. It allowed us to use our intellectual curiosity. It forced Mm -hmm. us to be tenacious in, in, in Mm -hmm. not giving up and asking more from our vendors to get things done. The other thing that happened during COVID, and this, and this is somewhat personal because it, it happened to me as well. A lot of us realized that we weren't in very good shape, uh, 
and and I say that you know in an athletic sense, but we a lot of us had been just burning the candle at both ends and realized we weren't really you know taking care of ourselves and you know we can talk about this in a minute and if you want but i you know i'd put the, a wellness program together is that this company that's that's worth talking about maybe we'll come back to that in a little bit um but it's uh it for me as an investor i started seeing how many more people were paying attention to their overall health and fitness and focusing more on prevention than on remediation, meaning, you know, getting a treatment for a disease that might have been preventable if, if people had taken better care of themselves. And and I had been on this journey for a while for myself and accelerated during during COVID. Um, but a lot of the a, a lot of the the investments that I've made um, recently have been a function of not wanting to deal with FDA approval if I can avoid it, as we talked about earlier. Uh, and second, focusing on helping people. Prevention may be too strong a word because of some of the investments that we've made, uh, but certainly that's the mindset. But mm-hmm. but being focused on wellness and longevity more than fighting disease once it's already happened. And and again, it's a crowded field right now, so I'm spending more time watching than I am putting dollars down. Um, but but I've in, invested nonetheless in a few things. And I, I mean, it's a you know with 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 the cost of computing power coming down, and more and more sophisticated chips being built that allow more and more data to get crunched. I think some of the businesses that are ML based that are starting now are going to to be really cool for all of us, whether you're your investor or or end end user as a patient from whatever medical provider is, is using what gets built. I know mm. that's really broad, but that's because there's so many things going on. Yeah. And so as you're an experienced investor, you've been doing that for a long time. But it's interesting to me, therefore, that you know, you're watching and wait, watching and learning almost at this point, you aren't succumbing to metrics from a different sector and just applying them to healthcare and then making investments at the same pace as you would in a different sphere, which I think is interesting. Um, so when you are looking at health care investments currently what are you looking at what are you looking for are you looking for like a personal connection to their mission and are you looking to be uh, things that you would just like to use their product is it that are you looking actually at financial metrics and even you know as, as we've talked about you know where we are in the cycle are you are you looking for things that you can see profitability in quickly are you looking for more of the long term i know that you said you invest early stage late stage and all these different things but I'm interested in what kind of tickles your fancy, so to speak. What gets you excited when you're looking at all these different things that you could invest in in healthcare and how are you assessing them? Let me answer those in kind of reverse order. At the end of the day, because it is an investment, it needs to generate a return. And because it's a pretty risky investment, it needs to have the potential to generate a pretty healthy return. Having said that, and you know the the lens that I kind of look through things, and 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 you alluded to this earlier in in our discussion. 
you know, I've built enough businesses now that there's got to be some reason to do it other than just making money. But the reason why profitability is important in addition to generating return is because you can't have a sustainable business if it can't fund itself. And if it doesn't make money, by definition, it can't fund itself. So so let's let's think about profitability and sustainability as kind of one and one and one and the same thing. As far as which investments I I pick through, uh, if 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 given the opportunity to focus on some of my altruistic motivation, you know, the save save the world that we talked about earlier from disease, then then I'm going to do that. And there's one company in particular uh, that I invested in called Xperia, which we can talk about in a little bit. But it's helping uh, it's it's helping oncology uh, companies figure out how to do clinical trials in a more efficacious way. But most of my investments, there there are more things that that I think have a an an immediate benefit to to me as a user, uh, but or or patient, but but also I I can see that that there is a path to profitability measured in years, not get decades. Where Xfera, I think, is going to take a while, but but its mission is is the best, and so I think it's that it's that range of, it's that range of things, but. But I'm looking at everything through the through mainly through the lens of of wellness and longevity because I understand that and it's actionable today. And I'm trying to save aside set aside some money for things that I know you know are really critical to all of us as humans uh, in 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 a disease fighting and caring compassionate way as well. Where do you get your information from to learn this sort of stuff? Um... I know that we spoke we spoke off air about someone that you know at the Cleveland Clinic and things like that. Obviously, if, if wellness is a big deal for the Cleveland Clinic, then clearly there's not only opportunity, but people are taking optimization of health very seriously, especially as it pertains to health more broadly and what that can do to health systems. And so I think it's a it's 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 an interesting term to me, wellness, because I think it's starting to come with a few connotations. Some are good, some are bad. Wellness can be associated with the optimization of health. Wellness can also be associated with, we just want to skip regulation and just get something to market and make some money B2C. Now, many (laughs) things can be true simultaneously at the same time. That can still be a good model. It's just that it's a little bit wild west at the moment with wellness and that kind of thing. But clearly knowing someone at the Cleveland Clinic is going to help you uh, sort the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. But yeah, how do you how do you get your learning? Who is it that you know at the well at, at the Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, if you know anything about what the Cleveland Clinic are doing, that might be quite nice to mention as well. So I started going to the Cleveland Clinic because during COVID I found out that I had an, an issue with my my lungs, which by the way I'm just fine now. Um, and I wanted to go check in with the guys there, uh, because you know your 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 lungs and your heart are they're pretty interconnected, and and we all know what the world thinks about the 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 cart the cardio team at the Cleveland Clinic, and but I was also you know, I've been I've been doing research for years and reading everything I can get my hands on about about. I, I actually like the phrase you used a minute ago, James. Health optimization. 
So before I knew wellness was a thing or longevity was a thing, I was trying to optimize my health and and figure out all these different hacks. Uh, so you know, to use a Dave Asprey phrase, I've been trying to biohack myself for for a while, and and so I I had done a little research on all the different things going on at the Cleveland Clinic and came across the wellness program, and and one of the guys that that um, there at the time, I think his name is Dr. Mark Hyman. I'm not sure if he's still actively engaged at the Cleveland Clinic or not, but he's he's published uh, a couple of books. He's got a podcast. I've been following him for a while. But then he has a colleague there named Dr. Michael Roizen. And, and you may know of Dr. Roizen because he and Dr. Oz wrote uh, a number of books about how to take care of yourself. And, and so, but, but I am embarrassingly, I hadn't actually read any of them until I, I met him a few years ago. And, and we spent an hour over an hour kind of going through a, a health optimization regimen. And, and, you know, some of it, some of it, you, 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 you know, probably all of it, you know, that you need to get your heart rate up and you need to be careful what you eat and what you drink and, and, and sleep. And, but it was, he, he took it to a very precise level. And, and I'm not sure how old Dr. Royzen is today. I'm going to guess mid seventies. He looks younger than I do. Okay. (laughs) So, so if that's any, if that's any metric, then there you go. But I, I I try and get up there every 12 to 18 months and 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 sit down with my pulmonologist because I have that 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 issue we talked about but also I get my blood work done and you don't have to go there to get it done I also have uh an a a doctor uh here in Texas that looks after me and and so there's a there's a whole regimen that we go through that's pretty similar to to what the Cleveland Clinic prescribed and by the way, you can go on your web, you can go on their website, a person can go on their website and, and, and see most of this or go on the Mayo Clinic or just go. I wonder what would happen if we Googled health optimization. You've probably already done that. Um, but it's, um, it, it is, you know, so now let's kind of pivot back to that Wild West conversation. You know, wellness, you're right. I hadn't thought about it until you said it. Well, I guess I had, but not in a while. Wellness is anything that you don't want to go seek FDA approval for. I'm I'm being cynical when I say that, um, but you know it's it's vitamin supplements, mineral supplements, probiotics, prebiotics. You know, some are in the refrigerator section at the grocery store, and others require a prescription. I mean, it you know it's it it's all over the place, which is why I said earlier it. It makes, you know, I put some chips down and now I want to just kind of take a step back and sit and watch and, and how things play out. You know, one of the companies I did not invest in, but, uh, but I've paid attention to closely and I actually am, am a customer, uh, is a company called Viome and they do blood samples and tool samples that then help you figure out what's the right regimen for you in terms of prebiotics, probiotics, and vitamins and mineral supplements. By the way, I'm not necessarily trying to plug them, 
Um, but, but I have, I have found using, using their regimen for me to be really helpful over the last couple of years, just, just as an aside. So they've, I don't know how many customers they have now, but they're collecting data every time we send in a blood sample or a stool sample. And, and they have other ways of collecting data along the way and their sample sets getting larger and larger and larger. There's another wellness company that I looked at a few years ago called whoop. Do you have a whoop strap? Have you ever heard of a whoop? I strap? don't have one. Okay, so, I, I know the company very well. Um, I know many, many, many people close to me with, with whoop devices. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically an, uh, an HRV or heart rate variability monitor. Okay. Mm. But they've got some, and and I've got one, but I don't always wear it because I wear a Garmin watch, which tracks all the same stuff. And God, I think of all the data that either one of those have. And just as an example, a friend of mine who's in his mid-70s is obsessed with his whoop strap. And he's obsessed with his heart rate variability because he gets a message from whoop every so often telling him how his HRV is relative to guys, his age in the town that he Mm. lives in. Mm. And he's number one on the leaderboard and doesn't want to not be number one on the leaderboard. You know, it's like, I remember one of my, when, when Snapchat first came out, one of my teenage kids is like, dad, I know studying is important, but I don't want to lose my streaks on my, (laughs) on, on Snapchat. I was like, oh, come on. But it's the same human behavior, right? Absolutely. And, and so it's so the point is to say they've got they I'm just gonna talk about whoop for a minute. They've collected so much data now that they can they can they were able during COVID to kind of figure out who had COVID and who didn't by what was happening with their heart rate variability, you know, all other things being present, I mean constant. Um, but you you've got all this data now that you can track and tell people. Are they on their baseline or not? And so that's why I was saying ML is so exciting earlier, because as we start figuring out how to create these data pools, we can figure out, you know, how maybe some people might be susceptible to disease in advance. And to me, that's really exciting. And so there's a few companies out there that that are trying to do this. And, and so I'm still kind of, I, I get that, you know, the truck, the train may leave the station before I get there, but there's just so many exciting things going on right now that I'm, I'm, I'm consumer or patient as much as I am investor. Yeah. And I think that's, it's an interesting vantage point to have actually. Um, but just to go back to the, the whole wellness wild west argument, like, yes, it is Wild West. And it's funny because the list of things that you rattled off there of like probiotics, prebiotics, vitamins, supplements, all this sort of stuff, for anyone that's got a kind of healthcare, like true healthcare background, you start to kind of cringe when you hear all those words. But you and I both know Thomas from Myota, for example. And you look at what Myota are doing as a fiber supplement, but Thomas is an MIT scientist that's using machine learning to develop a fiber supplement that does all sorts with short chain fatty acids in the brain and can prevent, you know, dementia and all sorts and is hard science behind it. And so 
it's interesting to me about where the wellness space is. And it's also interesting to me as an investor that, you know, you've, as you say, you've put some chips down and now you're going to sit back and actually have a look at how this stuff plays out before you make any more bets, because there are these kind of, I do see it as sort of like a desert of questionable with a desert of companies with question marks over them. But there are these kind of oases in the desert of MIT scientists like Thomas that are actually building something which I would consider of significant value. And it's allowing for those people to come up. And I think regulation in the wellness space will help to, to at least some degree, at least some regulation to allow some some of these better efficacy solutions to products to rise up above everything else. Just some way of of us deciding, you know, who's actually ahead in this race of all the wellness companies but it is a space that i think has value i've always said that when it comes to optimizing health those consumers that have the fortune to put their hands in their pockets to optimize their health in the uk we have a public healthcare system so we're not insurance based and therefore you know um, very few people have private healthcare in the UK. It's mostly public covered, but the public purse struggles to spread itself across prevention, which means that there's this strange question mark around what is the public healthcare system for? Should it spread its budgets into prevention? It would be better spent there, where, but there's too much to be spent at end of life care and all sick care and everything there. But there's no doubt that the public person and healthcare dollars, let's just call it, would be better spent in prevention. Of course, we know that. But for those that are fortunate enough to put their hands in their pockets, especially in the UK, to actually spend money on optimizing their health, those are people that aren't then presenting to the healthcare system. They aren't a burden on the healthcare system that the healthcare system can then spread its dollars or pounds to those that are more needing. But it's interesting to me that I've been peddling this argument for a while, but having read data and things around it, this question mark arises for me simply because of how long the argument's been around of, are these B2C devices, are these wellness devices, are they purely for the people that can afford them? Are we creating inequality by the, the business models that exist because is there a trickle down of this technology supporting everybody and it's funny because like i don't actually know the answer to this and i used to say well it has to start somewhere we have to you know these things have to happen because eventually this technology will prove that it has a business model it will prove the economics it will then be bought at scale by um more and more i don't know insurers or public sector organizations, that kind of thing. It will benefit everybody at some point. Um, but it's funny, like, I don't know. I actually, I actually don't know at the moment. I'd like to believe that is the case. And I think that is the case for so many things. And we're starting to see it particularly with AI and machine learning. It's now reaching a lot more maturity and we're seeing it a lot more across hospitals and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interest. it's an interesting question mark for me that, uh, that I, I wonder I wonder how long that takes. I don't actually, I don't actually doubt that it is 
that is the path, that is the route. I really don't doubt that. But I guess the question mark for me is how long that takes. And I just wonder what needs to be done with infrastructure and things like that to actually support this more and to get these wellness devices and to opt. Basically, it's less about the wellness devices, to be honest. It's more about how do we optimize the health of everybody? How do we make that equitable? I don't know. Yeah, that was, I, a, that, I, was, that was a ramble, but yeah. I think you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a, that's that, that's okay. So I'm going to give you a couple of different ways to to, to answer that. I'm going to. Data is really important. Data allows us to make decisions, and it's a good feedback loop for us to know if the decisions that we're making are are heading us in the correct direction. So let's start with devices for a minute. Okay, so I mentioned that I've have a whoop strap and I've got a Garmin watch and they both kind of do the same thing. Well, you know what the, you know what, what they both do is they both tell me what I already know. Okay. They're not, all they're doing is giving me data about my behavior. They're just reinforcing what I already know about myself and they're not doing anything other than that. Okay. And, and that's true of most devices. They're telling us what we already know about ourselves. And, and so this divide, the, the divide between the have and have nots isn't do you have a device or not. In my opinion, I think it's do you know enough about how to take care of yourself? And then do you have a device that helps reinforce that? And look, you can go buy an HRV monitor now for, for, I don't know, 50 bucks. I mean, mm. so, I mean, I get that you're not then spending that on something else, but it's not like you have to go spend hundreds of dollars to, to get a device to give you a number that helps you know whether you, in the case of HR, HR, HRV, whether you actually got a good night's sleep because A, you slept long enough, B, you didn't have that last cocktail right before you went to bed and you didn't have a steak and potato dinner followed by dessert. You know, I mean, it's like you already know what's going to happen when you do that. This is just a a very, very accurate reminder of, you know, it's like, you know, the only thing I dread more than waking up and looking at my phone to see what happened overnight that I've got to deal with is wondering how you know, what my HRV is in the morning based upon, you know, how I slept the night before. And, you know, we humans, sadly, at this, at this stage in the evolution of our species, particularly Americans are lazy. And so we, everybody's got a device because they think that that means that they're all of a sudden healthy because they've got the device and all, and and they didn't change their behavior. You know, (laughs) I was, I, my wife was telling me about a, a text message exchange between she and one of our kids, and they couldn't understand why they weren't losing weight and why maybe they needed – why they were a candidate for Ozempic. And then my wife systematically broke down my daughter's behavior and concluded <laughs> at the end that actually she just needed to modify her behavior. But it was just – it was – I wish I could post it somewhere. It was pure comedy. but. But back to data, back to data for prevention for a minute. You know, I mentioned earlier when I was when I was running one of my portfolio companies that we had thousands of people and our healthcare cause I mean, I'm going back now like this is 10, 10 plus years ago, pre Obamacare. 
And our healthcare, the the healthcare costs of the company just kept going up and up and up. And we were, you know, we were paying the majority of, of our employees healthcare costs. And one of my somebody on the HR team came to me and they said, you know, we need to spend more time on prevention. And I said, Well, yeah, well, we all do that. And they're like, No, you do that. I'm like, Okay, what do you suggest? They're like, Well, you know, the biggest thing we're spending money on is on people that have cardiac issues and diabetes. And and so I had a few smart ass comments about treadmills and that sort of thing. And they said, No, it's not what we want to do. By the way, we did have a treadmill in the office. If you wanted to talk and walk at the same time. But uh, this, we want to we want to screen people and and see if their heart is okay and their blood sugar level is okay and and it's not going to cost them anything. And I said, okay, great, let's line everybody up in the office. And and so then, not to do anything kind of half ass, I, I really wanted to make sure people showed up. So I said, and again, this was pre Obamacare. I said, okay, if you want to be on the company's insurance plan next year, you've got to show up and get tested. And everybody thought it was, mm. you know, trickery and this and that to get people bumped off the plan. Well, 99% of the people got tested. More than a handful went to the hospital right away because their blood pressure was to the moon. And, and the healthcare costs for the company didn't go up three years in a row just by screening people once a year and looking for things that were markers for for disease that was about to get bad. So prevention doesn't have to be about a device. Prevention can be just doing simple things like going and getting, you know, your man, remember when we were kids, we all went and got the annual exam at our doctor and we went to the eye doctor once a year and the dentist once or twice a year. And then all of a sudden people got lazy and stopped doing that. So it's really, you know, prevention's not that hard if we just encourage people to do just that little bit annually. No, it's a really nice, it's a really nice message actually. And I think we can, we can evangelize technology uh, and we can all be guilty of that if we're from tech, but you're right in that, the way to think about it is the tech is is just a stepping stone on the way to a behavior change. And ultimately, it's that that's going to be what prevents disease. It's funny because like with sleep trackers, sleep trackers are the ones that gets me, that get me because like if I'm tired, I'll go to bed. And if, and if I wake up tired, I'll go to bed a bit earlier. And so like I always joke with, you know, Jess, my fiance, that like she loves the quantified self, loves it loves the biohacking of herself, all of that sort of stuff. So of the two of us, she is the user of health tech. But yeah, I, I joke that like, what's a, like, what actually is the value of the graph? Like what actually is it? But you're right. It's what, it, that is the facilitator to nudge the behavior of, oh, okay, well, I actually do need to go to sleep earlier. There's data that backs that up. I can't just be lazy about it. And I want that data to be better. And it's, you know, in part knowing oneself as well about what's going to motivate you and that kind of thing. Um, but no, that yeah, it's 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 a really interesting message. That yeah, the data that excites me is the is the data uh, that's that we have a chance to to look at in these large data pools through yes. through machine learning yes. and all these large language models that are being built. But that tech is being built for the benefit of all of us, right? Yes. That's not that's not a have and have not thing either. And so that to me is really exciting. 
and also just one last just one last part to to the answer to the question i think over time you know regulation is good to knock out the bad actors mm-hmm. right away and and then to let the capital markets take care of the punters the ones that you know they're not saying something that isn't untrue it's just that what they have isn't that amazing and 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 let and over time as there's more and more data and it can be distributed and proven to people like Thomas's company, then, then I think they're the, they're the winner. Hopefully they're the winner and the companies like that are the winners in the long run, but it's the, you know, this is a long game. It's not a short game with all this because you're, you're fundamentally changing, changing people's behavior. You're fundamentally changing the healthcare system because as you say, uh, in the UK, and it's true here in the US to a lesser extent, but still true. It's hard to get medical providers to pay for prevention instead of disease remediation. It's stupid, but that's the way it is. Mm, it is a sad reality. Um, I have one final question for you before I let you go, which is sort of wrapping in. Um, the first half about you and the second half about the investments that you're making. And it's about the world that you want to see. So with your investments and with the things that you're using and all of the above, really, what does, what does success mean for you at this point with where you're at now, with what you're trying to do with your investments? What, what is success to you? And what is the world that you want to live in? If let's say all of your investments are successful, what world are you trying to create with your investments? Well, let's talk about time horizon. So the first time that I went to go see Dr. Roizen at the Cleveland Clinic a few years ago, he said, my goal is to help you live to 100. And I was like, okay. The last time I saw him, which was about a year ago, he goes, my goal is to help you live to 110. And I'm like, okay. And, and, you know, but like I'm on the plane going home and I'm thinking, what does that mean? I'm like, Mm. okay, well that means that, that, that I've, I'm going to be around, you know, for more than another half a century. And, and I don't want to spend, you know, the last decade or two or three in a, in a, in a semi-cognitive world and or a semi-ambulatory world, or to say it differently, if I don't know what's going on and I can't get around, I don't want to be a part of that. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is um, most people's retirement plans don't plan for that. So, so that <laughs> means true, we'll you might want to work a little, you might, you might want to work a little longer. You know, I love what I'm doing. I, I don't feel any older today than than I did 20 years ago until I look in the mirror and go, oh, oh my. Um, I need to use more of the product of more of the companies that I've invested in. But it also means that I've got a longer time horizon to think about investing and moving the needle. And so some of these things we've talked about today, they're going to take a decade or two to play out. And so I, I absolutely want to be a part of that uh, as, as somebody that's the beneficiary as a customer or a patient, uh, but also as somebody that, that can and, uh, help find the winners and invest in them. Because at the end of the day, 
we all benefit from that. And, and I look forward to seeing, I, I look forward to the possibility of being around long enough to see these things play out and, and benefit from them both as, as investor and, and somebody that, 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 that is, that they've impacted as user or patient. Awesome. Um, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I think it's, it's a noble cause, of course, anybody coming from other sectors moving into healthcare and bringing much needed capital, much needed resource and trying to ignite life into our sector. And so it is very well received. Um, I hope that everything you're investing in goes incredibly well. For those people that want to know more about your fund, Aquila, or they want to know about any of your portfolio companies, or they want to know more about you, what's the best way for them to find out more info? I'm on LinkedIn, uh, so you can reach me at, at Marky Watson the Third on LinkedIn. Uh, Aquila Capital Partners has a website. It's aquilavc.com. That's a q u i l a v c dot com. Uh, but if you want to ask, if you want. If you want to get to me, just go on LinkedIn and send me a message. And that's probably the best way to get me. Beautiful. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.